The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. My name is Paul. I am one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship. And as always, it's my privilege and my joy to be able to be with you this morning and to be chosen to, to deliver God's Word to you this morning. Um, it, is an, it is an incredible honor to gather with you. I want to welcome those of you that are here in the sanctuary. I know we got people online and people in the overflow. Welcome to Heritage. Hey, we are in a series here in the book of Hebrews, have been for quite some time. We're calling the series Greater, True, or Better. If you brought a Bible this morning, I would encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 6. In this series, uh, we've been looking at primarily how Jesus is greater, truer, and better. For example, uh, you know, Jesus is a greater high priest. He, he offers a better sacrifice. He speaks a truer word. Um, but this idea of greater, truer, better doesn't just refer to Jesus. And our text this week is going to show us that there's actually broader implications to this title series. Today we're going to see that because of Jesus, you and I can have greater confidence than those who have gone before us, those in the Old Testament. Because Jesus, we can have a greater, a truer, and a better faith. And so we're going to be in verses 13 through 20. Last week, if you were here, it was a difficult teaching. We had a guest preacher, my friend Dave from Wisconsin, was out here, and he walked us through Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 12, verses 4 through 8 in chapter 6 of Hebrews are some of the most difficult and controversial, and it's the, the mother of all warnings. It's one of the most challenging places in all of Scripture. And last week when David was here, he walked us through uh, the text, talked initially about a call, that, that, that God calls us, and the book of Hebrews, primarily in, in this call for perseverance, calls us and called the original audience and us today to build a firm foundation, to no longer go back to the elementary doctrines, but to build a foundation upon which we can build a sturdy faith. There was this catastrophe last week in our teaching, this catastrophe that is apostasy, that is those who once claimed Christ but have fallen away. There's this catastrophic reality that those who have hardened their hearts and rejected Christ in unbelief, they cannot be restored again to faith. That was a hard teaching. And then we finished last week with this call. It was called the confidence that there can be full assurance of hope that belongs to those of us who cling to Jesus Christ. And now today we wrap up chapter 6. And our gaze is going to be fixed upon the fulfilled promise of Jesus. This is, our text tells us today, the anchor for our soul. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves... And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm so thankful for this encouraging word this morning. We've, we've had three warning passages in Hebrews up to this point that have been difficult to teach through hard, kind of unsettling, if you will. I am so grateful for this encouraging word this morning in our text. We have a strong encouragement, it says in verse 18. I want you to notice what, what it says here in the beginning of verse 17. Notice that it says, so when God desired. 
If you're an underliner or a highlighter or someone who circles, circle that phrase. Our text tells us today what God desires. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Our passage today speaks of the desire of God. What did he desire? Well, he desired to give us hope. That we would hold fast to his promises. His desires for us is to have a confidence in his promises. To cling to those promises. And the promises of God in our life are, are the anchors of our soul. And so God desired to show us this. And after the difficult teaching last week, after the hard teaching that we sat under last week, some of the most sobering words in all of Scripture... It's a warning to end all warnings. It was tough to hear. It was hard to hear. But the warning that God spoke last week in verses 4 through 8 was spoken in love. God speaks warnings in his scripture not to shame us or make us afraid needlessly. He speaks it out of love because he intends to preserve us. That was the intention of his, of his warning last week. But warnings are not the only way that God can spur on perseverance. Here there is hope in our passage today. Our God, who cannot lie, speaks this hope-inducing promise that, that also serves to preserve us. We have something uh, hopeful to cling to. It's not a warning. It's, it's an invitation into something. God's promises aren't just cool phrases that make neat tattoos. His, his promises aren't just warm, fuzzy phrases to put in Christian greeting cards. His promises aren't just great little phrases to put at the bottom or the top of Christian journals. No, his promises, the promises of God, are anchors to our soul, and it's God's desire for you and for me today, right now, to grab hold of the hope that is found in his promises. So if I was to summarize this entire passage today into a simple applicational phrase, here, here's what it is. God desires for you to hold fast to the hope you have in Jesus. God desires for you to hold fast to the hope you have in Jesus. It is an anchor for your soul. We see God's desire on display for you and for me today in our text. And that's it. Here's what he did. What, what does God desire for you today? What's God want you to know today as you gather in this place, as you sit under the preached word? He, he wants you to know that his desire for you, his heart for you, is that you hold fast to the hope you have in Jesus. It is the very anchor for your soul. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're grateful to be in this book of the New Testament, God. We're grateful for uh, this picture that you are the anchor for our soul, the promises of Christ that we can hold fast to. It is, it is the hope. It is the hope of the Christian person. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this passage, as we unpack the, the particularities of this text, God, that, that we would ultimately would see this amazing truth. We would recognize that today, right now, as we gather in this place right here in this sanctuary in Medford, Oregon, that you have a desire for us as, as, as your children. And your desire for us is that we joyously hold fast to the hope that we have in your Son. God, you desire for us to build our life on this truth, to have this be the anchor that holds us in the wildest and scariest of times. God, I pray that by your spirit today, you would help us to see the things we need to see. God, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us receptive hearts, God, to receive this truth and live in light of it for your glory. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, I know we've been hearing this phrase, hold fast. It's a recurring theme in the book of Hebrews. We see this phrase, hold fast, come up in in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. This is one of those threads that we talked about early on in the series that kind of holds the whole book together. The book is an invitation for people who are ready to give up on their faith to hold fast to Jesus and to persevere to the end. That's the kind of the, the overarching message of the book of Hebrews. And so the author throughout the book has encouraged us to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The author has encouraged us to hold fast our confession. Today in our text, we're encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before us. In chapter 10, verse 23, the author concludes by saying, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And as I considered that this week, I I know that Jeremy and I have talked often about our our trip a couple years ago to Yosemite, but I found myself back thinking about this trip that Jeremy and Aaron and I and Pastor Sam from Philippi, we had this incredible trip a few years ago uh, to Yosemite, and it culminated sort of the crescendo of our experience out there was to climb Half Dome. And Half Dome is this amazing, for those of you that don't know, it's this this awe-inspiring chunk of granite that just juts up from the the Yosemite Valley, some 8,000, 9,000 feet tall, just this slick gray chunk of granite. It's beautiful. And we got the opportunity to climb it on our final day at Yosemite, and it was was incredible. It was the culmination of our trip. And, you know, as we prepared for that, I know I've shared this with you in the past, I I was just sort of ho-hum about it. I mean, I was excited to climb, but, you know, I'd been in the mountains. I spent time in the Rockies. I've climbed lots of mountains. I've been on exposed faces on knife point ridges. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. But like I've shared previously, when I got to the base of Half Dome and I looked at the sheer slick rock face that we had to climb up, my knees buckled. It was terrifying. And, and the people of the park have put up these cables that take you all the way to the top of Half Dome. There's these two little cables about two and a half feet apart, and you can walk between them and hold on. And I'm thinking about this invitation in Hebrews to hold fast. I lived that out every step. I held fast to that cable every step. And I was trying not to be a chicken. I didn't want the guys to know how afraid I was because they didn't seem scared at all, but I think they were just putting on a bluff for me. And I was trying to climb up that thing and I was terrified. All the stories of people who had fallen to their death off Half Dome are running through my mind. I'm looking at my feet. I'm scared to look around. I'm holding fast to those cables. They're my only hope. To let go would have been catastrophic. But you know, somewhere halfway up the mountain, maybe Two-thirds of the way up the mountain, I was able to catch my breath. I got my feet secured. I was on the side of the face, and, I, and I'm able to lift my eyes up and just look around. Oh, my goodness. For those of you that have been to Yosemite, you know how incredible that valley is. I mean, just granite peaks as far as the eye can see. Rock faces. The sun was rising over clouds rest. It was just an incredible sight to behold. And I was reminded that those cables aren't just there to keep me from falling. They, they were there to allow me to experience the beauty of that place. It wasn't just a preventative, it was also like this this positive invitation to experience the beauty of this creation. To let go would have been catastrophic, but it also would have just been foolish. I got to experience something incredible, and I held fast, not because I was afraid I was going to fall, I held fast so that I could experience this incredible thing that was taking place, and it was joy. And I was reminded of that when I think of this text today. Cables aren't there just to keep me from death. They're they're there to provide an incredible encounter. And I think about our lives. Now, we all know that there are seasons in our lives. You can all attest, and and many of you have chatted with you about your life at different points. We can all attest that there are times in our life when we are holding fast to Jesus with our heads down. We're facing death either figuratively or literally, and life is beating us up, and, and we're made very aware of our vulnerability, and we hold fast, aware that this is our only hope in the midst of a difficult season. That's a reality for the Christian. 
But there's also those other seasons. And I love to celebrate these seasons with the people of God. When our holding fast is less out of desperation, it's more out of pure joy. We've, we've come to realize that the sheer beauty of God's love in Christ is for us. And his grace washes over us and our shame is taken away and we get to stand in forgiveness. And no matter what life throws at us, we can have this incredible joy. We can enjoy the view. And so we hold fast and we revel in this incredible hope. I think of a father or a mother who loves a child. And I think of what we as parents desire for our kids. I think of all the different phases of raising my kids from infancy to toddlers to preschool to elementary to middle to high school, now into adulthood. And when I look at my children, I have great desires for my kids. I desire for them to experience joy and to have hope and to find success and to see beautiful things in their life. And I know sometimes life takes them through difficult seasons and that's okay, but I also de I desire for them to thrive. And I think about the desire of God as we hold fast to him. It isn't just for us to survive, it's for us to thrive. God desires for you and for me to hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus. This is the anchor for our soul. So let's look at our text. There's four things I want you to see today. The banner kind of over my text today is simply this, the promise of our great God. We see the promise of our great God in our text today, and then there's three points underneath that. I'll work through these systematically. Verse 15, we see the faithful patience of Abraham. Verses 16 through 18, we see the unchangeable character and the promise of God. And then in verse 18 through 20, we see uh, the steadfast anchor for our soul. So let's begin by looking at the promise of our great God. Look at verses 13 and 14 again with me. This is how the author begins this section of, of, of the scripture today. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Notice the, the word promise and notice the word greater in these first two verses. Now, this is a promise of our great God. How encouraging to know that the promise of God is not dependent on us, but it's dependent on him. Now, God chose Abraham and made a promise with Abraham, but the promise, the efficacy and the steadfastness and the ability of the promise to see its fruition did not depend on the fickle, short-sighted nature of Abraham. The promise of God rested on the power of God, the one making the promise. I read this week that God's promises are guaranteed by God's own perfectly trustworthy character. The story of Abraham, we, we read in the book of Genesis, from Genesis 11 all the way through Genesis 25, and God makes a promise with him, and then he promises him that a great nation will come by his seed, through his line. And then when we open up the New Testament, the very first verse of Matthew, we see the, word of, we see the name of Abraham. We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. The promises that God made to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth are fulfilled in Christ thousands of years later. So we have this incredible banner that rests over our text today, the promise of our great God. This is what the author is doing. He's pointing us to these promises of God that aren't just things that we consider. These are truths that we can anchor our soul to. God has made a promise, and it is for you, and it is for me, and it's relevant today. So that's the first thing I want you to see. So what, what do we see as he's unpacking this promise? Well, we see in verse 15 the faithful patience of Abraham. We see the, 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 the patience of Abraham, the faithful patience of Abraham is upheld here. Look at what it says in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. If we scale back a few verses and we look at verse uh, 11 and 12, that sort of introduces our text today. The author tells the audience, uh, he says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, 
so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the offer says, hey, you should be, you should be faithful and you should be patient. And he said, you should be imitators of those who've gone before you and lived in such a way. So now he's taken us to Abraham saying, here's an example of someone who, who through faith and patience inherited the promises. And so who's Abraham? Been around the church, clearly we, we were familiar with the name Abraham. I remember one time, totally off the subject, not on my notes. Maybe I shouldn't say something that's not on my notes. But I remember years ago, I was in Africa. And uh, I was uh, meeting with a 100% Muslim people group. We were doing missions work there. We had been building a relationship for about a decade. And, um, and we were talking. I'm trying to get to know these people. And I was telling them that, that we wanted to have a, a son. I, I just had my, my third child. And, and I said, my daughter's name was Alexandria. And they said, what were you going to name your child if it was a boy? I said, I wanted to name the boy Abraham. And in Islam, Abraham is a, is a figure in Islam as well as Christianity. And it's a revered name. And, and I didn't pause to think about it. And then I said, just sort of off the cuff, I said, uh, yeah, but you know, then since I had a girl and I still had this name Abraham in the queue, I had a dog and I named my dog Abraham. Ooh, I nearly undid 10 years of work. <laughs> I was like, please preserve my head, Lord. It was, I, I, that was, I had, a, I had a tent full of people very upset with me. Just a random story. Anyways. <laughs> This is exciting. So who's Abraham? Well, he's, he's, just, he's a normal human, right? We see him, we, he's talk, we, 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 we are introduced to him as Abram at the end of Genesis chapter 11, but we really get to see him in, in Genesis 12. He's a normal human like you and me. However, he is someone through whom God, God came to him and God chose him in Genesis 12. He, he made a promise to Abraham that there would be a great nation through his seed. And he promised Abraham, God did, that he would pour out a unique and specific and particular blessing upon that nation that would come from him. And then he promised that through that nation, that Abrahamic nation, God promised that all families of the earth would be blessed. This meant that through Abraham's offspring, there would be a blessing for all the families of the earth. What an incredible promise. And Abraham receives this promise from God. The problem is he's 75. And his wife is 65. And she's barren and they have no children. And how is he going to become the father of a great nation with no children? But as we see the story of Abraham unfold, and we're going to look at more depth in this next week when we get into our series in Origins, Abraham believed God. He, he made mistakes. He drifted to the left and he drifted to the right. But ultimately, we read in the scriptures that Abraham believed God. After 25 years, God finally blesses him and Sarah with Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter because when a 90-year-old woman and when a 100-year-old man have a child, it's laughable. But God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He provided the beginnings of this promise. And you can read this throughout the first half of Genesis. We get to Genesis chapter 22. After this long journey of faith with, with Abraham, he has his son Isaac. The promise is, has been fulfilled. It's unfolding in his presence. And then in Genesis chapter 22, we have this incredible climax or this incredible uh, challenge or this, this crisis that, that happens in the story of Abraham. God speaks to Abraham and he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. What? 25 years he waits for the fulfillment of a promise for a son that will be the beginning, the seed of a great nation. And now God asks him to take his son to Mount Moriah some three days away, this old man with his young son, and to sacrifice him? But Abraham had walked with God for a lot of years. He made some mistakes along the way. And in this season, he's obedient. Three days journey, they arrive at Moriah. And Abraham prepares to sacrifice his son. Chapter 22, verses 9 and 10 of Genesis says that when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there 
and laid wood in order and bound it to Isaac, his son, and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, it's hard to put this in a flannel graph, but I know we've heard this story our whole lives. What a brutal moment. I mean, just take away the, we look at through all these lenses, we sort of sanitize these stories because we're reading them, but just, just for a second, dads, parents in this room, imagine this moment with your son or your daughter. Or if you're a child and you don't have kids, imagine your father or your mother in this moment, knowing that God had given him an impossible task, but trusting and believing that God knew what he was doing. Here's this old man. His son had to participate. He was an old man. Can you imagine that moment, the sobbing, the heartbreak, the kissing, the embracing of one another, believing that somehow this was God's will, but not sure what that all meant? But then God, seeing Abraham's obedience in chapter, or verses 11 through 14, God says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So then Abraham lifts up his eyes, and he looks out, and he sees a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And he went and he took the ram, and he offered the ram up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham named that mountain, the Lord will provide. Now I tell you what, we, we look at the life of Abraham, and he made a lot of mistakes along the way. He offered up his wife to other men to protect his own skin. He, he, he laid with his servant girl to, to bear an illegitimate son because he didn't trust in the timing of God's promise. We can throw a lot of stones at a man who did it wrong, but when you look at the way Abraham's story ended, he feared the Lord and he was obedient to his word as hard as that was. It's an incredible story. And now the author is holding him up, saying he patiently waited and he obtained the promise. So we're meant to see the faithful patience of Abraham. And then we get to verses 16, 17, and 18. And we see the unchangeable character and promise of God. This is the third thing I'd encourage you to write down. We see the unchangeable character and promise of God. Let's begin by reading verses 13 and 14 and then jumping down to verse 16 just for for full context. For when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself and he said, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Let's pause there. What are these two unchangeable things? Well, they're his promise, his spoken promise, but also his oath to uphold that promise. These are these two unchangeable things anchored to the unchangeable character of God. We have that phrase unchangeable repeated twice in verses 18 and 19. This is speaking to the character and the promise of God. Now, if you have a cross-reference feature in your Bible, and if you look at at, at Hebrews 6.13, you'll see that there's a little reference to this phrase at the end of verse 13 where it says, he swore by himself. The the reference will say Genesis 22.16. It'll point us back to the chapter that we were just in about about Abraham on Mount Moriah sacrificing his son. And here's the reference, Genesis 22, 16, after Abraham passes the test and after God provides the ram, God speaks to Abraham because he was obedient. Here's what God says to Abraham in this moment on Mount Moriah. With, his, with the ram has been offered, now his son is safe. And here's Abraham, faithful in this moment. And God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. He says, I will surely bless you, Abraham. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
And so when the author of Hebrews, at the end of 13, tells us that God swore by himself, he's referring to this moment on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And God himself made an oath. He swore an oath. Why would he do that? Well, to make an oath means to make a promise more sure. He's making the promise more sure. Think about the way we speak of swearing. Think about when you're a kid and you're trying to convince your friends of something. And the things you would say, because you want them to believe you, so you're trying to think, okay, you don't believe me. My word's not enough, so i gotta, I got to appeal to something bigger than me. And you'd say, I swear on my mother. I swear on my life. I swear to God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because we, we, we wanted to appeal to something greater to make sure the words that we were saying to our friends were true. That's the idea here. God, there's nothing greater than God himself. And so he swears an oath on himself. There's nothing greater than God. And so God not only wants to bless Abraham, he he wants Abraham to live in full assurance of his promise. And God wants Abraham to be strongly encouraged. And so he swears an oath so that Abraham will have full assurance. And what's interesting, and and Jeremy and I and the the team as we met this week, and Kathy, and as we met and we chatted about this passage this week, we we found ourselves asking this question, like, it's interesting that God chose to, to, to swear an oath. Like, he'd already spoken his promises. I mean, he, he spoke initially in, in Genesis 12. He had a blood covenant in Genesis 15. There was the covenant with circumcision in Genesis 17. There's the things he speaks here in, in 22. God had spoken his promises. This is God. I mean, he's creator God. He's the alpha, the omega. He is, he is sovereign in, in what his word is steady and true. But, but why did he make an oath? Like, why wasn't his word enough? Why did he feel it necessary he didn't have to take an oath, but, but he did. Why? And that's one of the questions. Each week when we look at a passage, we have a series of questions we work through. And one of the questions we work through each week is when initially reading this text, what was confusing? And that was one of the things that was confusing for us. God made a promise, and isn't his word enough? But then I paused. I began to think about this. And I looked to some other conversation partners, and, and I realized that this oath by God is here for us. God reminds us of Abraham way back then, and he does so to show you and me something very important today. I mean, this oath was initially spoken some 4,000 years ago in, on Mount Moriah, by the way, which is where the temple ended up being built. It's the site of Jerusalem. It's the site of the temple where the sacrifice of Isaac was to take place. It's an incredible story. But it was 4,000 years ago God spoke this oath or made this oath with Abraham. And then, and then some 2,000 years ago, the author of the book of Hebrews was looking at these Christians, these Hebrew Christians who were, who were tired and ready to give up, who, who needed to, to, to press into their, the, 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 their faith, who needed to persevere in the face of, of difficulty. And he draws upon this 2,000 years ago, this oath of God to give them a confidence and assurance and, and hope. And God, in his infinite wisdom, inspired these words not just for them then, but also for us today. So these words were spoken 4,000 years ago to Abraham, also for us today. Through this promise, God is accomplishing his purpose, his unchangeable purpose. That oath that was spoken 4,000 years ago was not spoken just for Abraham. As I read this week, you and I were in God's mind on that day on Mount Moriah when he spoke this oath. This oath gave Abraham confidence as he looked forward to the hope of God's fulfillment. And if that's true, if 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 this oath did give Abraham confidence, how much greater ought our confidence be? I mean, we look back at the cross and we see the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. And it's now through Christ that all the nations of the earth are in fact blessed. 
God desires that his people live with complete confidence in his promises. And so he gave this oath on top of all of it to offer additional confidence. You know, we got up to, we got up to the top of, of, of Half Dome and we were looking around and it was beautiful and we dangled on the edges and Aaron dangled his feet off the edges and I, I put a, a video of, of, of Aaron dangling his feet off the 5,000 foot cliff at Half Dome and I posted it online and, and I got him in trouble, I think. And then we, we, we spent some time up there and it was amazing and then we had to walk back down and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to come back down. But we had the cables, and I could hold fast, and I knew I'd be okay, but I was a little bit nervous. And so Jeremy, by God's grace, had brought an extra carabiner and some strapping, and so we made a little harness for me. And I was able to carabine into these cables and walk down. So not only did I hold fast with my hands, but I had this secondary assurance. I had the secondary confidence. And that little carabiner, that little harness that held me in place, it held me, it was, it just allowed, it just gave sure confidence when I was going down the mountain. I was able to enjoy it and, and, and have assurance and have hope on my way down the mountain and enjoy the scenery and take it all in. It was incredible. It was like a double promise and it gave double confidence for me. And so God gives this oath to Abraham back then so that you and I today might live in full confidence. That his promise and his swearing on himself is done, and it's done for you and for me. So that you and I today, no matter what we face in life, we can have as much confidence as possible. God's desire will be accomplished, and his hope will be, will be realized and fulfilled in our lives. This promise of Abraham was a promise for us. And today we can have greater confidence because God has taken uh, greater concrete form in and through his son Jesus. There is these far-reaching implications to this promise. It's stretched all the way into the future to us today. And so now we see Jesus seated in heaven, and we see more clearly than, than Abraham did. Jesus is the forerunner who has gone on our behalf. And so we see this great promise of God. We see the faithful patience of Abraham. We see the unchangeable character and promise of God, which takes us all the way down to this. This gets us to the point of the passage. That's all a preamble to, to get us to this point where the author wants the application to take place. This is why he's writing all of this. And, and here's what he wants us to know. He wants us to know the steadfast anchor of your soul. There is a steadfast anchor for your soul. By two unchangeable things, beginning in verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so here we are, back to Melchizedek. The author brought this up in the middle of chapter 5, but then he's taken a detour for a chapter and a half because he had to correct and, and rebuke the, the original audience. But initially, he wants us to get back to this conversation about how Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not like the Levitical priesthood. He's, he's a different kind of priest. He's like Melchizedek. The author has wanted to talk about this for a chapter and a half, but he's had to take this, this, immaturity to, or this detour to confront immaturity. But there's some things here in these last couple of verses of our passage that we need to notice. There's three things I want you to notice. Number one, I want you to notice how in the middle of verse 18, the author switches from talking about God and Abraham to talking using, using the, the language of we and us. Look at this at the beginning of verse 18. We might have strong encouragement. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to our soul. Jesus has gone as a foreigner on our behalf. And so this conversation now is about application. This is, is, is being applied to those who are sitting under this teaching. The second thing I want you to notice is why God made this oath at the end of, of 18. Well, why did he make this oath? Well, that you and I may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's why he did this. That, that, that's the main application of the text. That you and I hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And then third, I want you to notice what we see in verse 19. What does this promise provide for the people of God? Well, we have the sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. And so, so what is this hope that is set before us? What is this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that the author is talking about? Well, it is this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the, this is the greatest story ever told. This is the best story ever told. This is the gospel. This is, this is speaking about what Christ has accomplished so that you and I today can have assurance and we can hold fast and we can rest in this anchor for our soul. But we have to have a bit of a backdrop. So let's, let's kind of scale back again. We have to go back into the Old Testament and remind ourselves of a little bit of Old Testament here. We know the story that the people of God were in Egypt and God heard their groans and he sent a deliverer or a mediator, Moses, and God used Moses to deliver the people from the oppression of Egypt and they ended up in the desert. And there's this scene in the book of Exodus where, Jesus, where Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai and God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments to Moses and talking about uh, worship and what it looked like for the people of God to worship. And also on that mountain, God gives instructions to Moses regarding the tabernacle. In Exodus 24, all the way through chapter 31. We probably have heard this, but let's remind ourselves today. The tabernacle was this tent. It was this tent of meeting, and there were two places in the tent. Two parts. There was the holy place. This is where the priests carried out their priestly function. There were seven candles. There was a table with some bread. There was an altar with some incense. And then between this holy place and the next chamber, the most holy place, there was this thick curtain. A heavy curtain and it separated the holy place from the most holy place and behind that curtain in the most holy place was the ark of the covenant and that was this this ornate gold-plated wooden chest inside this ark there was a golden urn holding manna Aaron's staff which had sprouted was in there the tablets of the covenant were in there and above the ark of the covenant were these gold-plated cherubim with their wings overshadowing the mercy seat and this represented the, the presence of God it's the place where God dwells it was the very throne of God and this thick curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place it was there for a reason our text today refers to this curtain that Jesus went behind so it's important that we understand this this thick curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, it was there for a reason. And because there had to be a separation between sinful man and holy God. However, God wanted to dwell with his people, so there was this arrangement. I read this week, to be in the presence of God was a consuming experience. There's tradition that says that one time a year that the high priest would go into the most holy place to provide sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The other priests in the holy place would tie a rope around the, the high priest's waist. And if he went in the most holy place to make sacrifice or to make an offering, uh, and if he had unconfessed sin in his life, he would die. And they would drag his lifeless body out by the rope because you couldn't go behind the curtain. That's how significant this was. So to be in the presence of God, it was a consuming experience. A tabernacle, the tabernacle rather, represented the way things really are. And again, I read this 
from a scholar this week, and, and here's, here's, here's the way things really are. God is in heaven right now. Majestic, holy, perfect, glorious, sovereign, righteous, omnipotent, you name it. God is in heaven right now. And you and I were made to be in his presence and enjoy him. That's the original design. But because of sin, there is a separation. Something must separate holy God and sinful man. And like I heard this, this, this fellow say earlier this week, there had to be a separation between holy God and sinful man, and this thick curtain is there for a reason. Now think of that curtain. Think what this curtain represents. Think of this separation between God and man. All of this by way of setup for the good news. Because what's the good news? Well, this promise that God made to Abraham that there would be a great nation, that his, his family would be a blessing to all nations, it points us to Jesus. That's where we get to the genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, we read that Jesus is in the lineage of Abraham. Jesus is the point. It all points to Christ. What did Jesus do? Well, he, he came to earth. Fully God, fully man. God sent his son, born of a virgin Mary. He lived about 30 years and then began a public ministry revealing through signs and wonders and through teaching who exactly he was. And at around the age 33, Jesus, though he knew no sin, was sinless. He hung on a cross as a spotless, sinless sacrifice. And God poured out wrath against our sin upon his holy son, upon his only son on the cross on that day. And he satisfied God's divine judgment. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, Matthew tells us, chapter 27, verse 50, that when Jesus had cried out again a loud voice, he gave up his spirit Matthew 27, 51, and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you see what Jesus came to accomplish? Do you see how the promise is being fulfilled? The thing that separates God and man was dealt with by Christ on the cross on that day. The thing that separates God and man, it was taken away by Jesus. The barrier between God and man symbolized by this thick curtain was taken away and it was made abundantly clear when that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death and sin. Several days after that, Jesus ascended into heaven into the very presence of God right before his disciples. The author of Hebrews begins his letter by this. He says, after making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So Jesus has ascended and he is with the Father. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down behind the curtain, if you will. Jesus right now is in the very presence of God. He has finished his work. This hope that we have because of what Christ has done is so far-reaching. Listen to what one theologian says. The hope is unmovable. The hope is unmovable and secure. It is an anchor for believers that reaches into the innermost parts of the veil. It has access to the presence of God. Jesus entered through the veil into God's presence as our forerunner, and he was able to do so because he is a Melchizedekian priest. We'll unpack that more in the coming chapters. And so here's, here's what this means for you and me today. Jesus being there right now in heaven, sitting down, it means he's done all the work that he came to do. The fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, the fact that he is sitting right now, it, it proclaims that all the promises of God are secured in Christ. I think of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, that all his promises are yes and amen in Christ. So you and I have this today. 
We have this today. We have this today no matter what happens. We, with, the, with, the, with the cross and the empty tomb, the, the risen and ascended Christ in our viewfinder, we have all that in our view today. We can see the fulfilled promise of God in Christ. Now, Abraham did not have this clearly in his view. But you and me, we do. We have Jesus in heaven today in the presence of God. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, speaking of Abraham, his, where he was, was he, when he was living out his faith, Hebrews 11 verse 10 says that, he, that, that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But you and I, we have the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul today. We have it today. And this is the basis for our hope. He has done all that he came to do. The promises of God are secured we can hold fast to this hope that we have in Jesus. And the application of the author is very simple. It's just simply hold fast. Hold fast to this. This is God's desire for you and God's desire for me that we, that we cling to Jesus. This is our hope. We have this strong encouragement, this sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. This is what God desires for you and for me today. That's our big idea. God desires for you to hold fast to the hope you have in Jesus. This is the anchor for your soul. I had a friend remind me of this this week. As I was studying this text, I had a lot of great conversation partners, some in person, some in book format, some friends in other parts of the country. And I had a friend remind me this week of our hope, how it is secured in Christ. He said Christ is like a super oath to the promises of God. Christ is God's oath written in his own blood. When we see Jesus there, the right hand of the Father, sitting down, his work complete, the promises fulfilled, we have an assured confidence. And here was the picture that was described to me this week. I love this picture. There's you and me here. There's us. And then there's Jesus. And then there's all the promises that we've received through him, recorded for us in the scriptures, that we'll be with him, that we'll be like him, that we'll enjoy that will enjoy the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth, all the promises of God. And, and him being there is like this anchor for our souls. This is all that we need to, to hold fast to this hope that is set before us. You and me, we are united to Christ by faith. And right now, Christ is in God's presence. And so here's the picture that was shared with me this week. I wish this was my illustration, but it's not. When Jesus ascended, when he completed his work, when he said it is finished, and when he defeated death and he ascended into heaven, he is now seated beside the majesty on high, as Hebrews tells us. When he went there, Jesus carried with him an anchor. And you know how an anchor looks like. It's an anchor with an arm across the top. And one arm of that anchor is hooked around the sturdy shoulders of Jesus. The other arm of that anchor is hooked around the back of the throne of God who made the promise and who swore by himself. And this anchor is connected to the promises of God, to our souls, and the chain of the promises are surely wrapped down from heaven around us. And because you and I are anchored there, because there's this anchor secure in heaven and the promises of God wrap around us, we are, we are latched in, we are locked in, we have the, the, the assurance of God. That means that you and I today, here right now, we can live with confidence about our future. We can have an anchor that is sure and steadfast, this anchor is in the very presence of God and is secured by the blood of his son. So how does that meet us today? In this place right here, right now. 
I know how, how life brings crazy challenges. Jeremy and Aaron and I, just a few moments ago before service, we were talking in the office about Chinese spy balloons and military jets being scrambled and weird stuff happening. And it's like, I feel the fear rising. I feel the tension rising. But I just think about the reality of what you and I face every day. The threat of recession, marital conflict, spiritual doubt, cancer, wayward loved ones, depression, financial strain, stress of all sorts, chronic pain, infertility, loneliness, addiction, shame, regret, fear, grief, sorrow. I think of the reality of this life when we just want to be, we, 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 are, we hang on and we're, we're, we're crippled, falling to our knees, hoping just to get by. But as we read this passage, here's what, here's what it means for you and for me. We can, we can lift our eyes. We can take in the beauty around us. We can live with a hope that is as strong as it can possibly be. You can have deep confidence that all God's promises will be yours. All of God's promises will be yours. You can bank on it. You can rest in it. You can stand on it. You can count on it. You can trust in it. God desires for you and for me to hold fast to the hope we have in Jesus. This is the anchor for your soul. Did you hear that? God desires. His desire for you and for me today, no matter where we are in life, as we look to him today, his desire for us right now is that you and me hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus as the very anchor for our souls. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this word this morning. God, I'm grateful that the fulfillment and the hope of your promises is not contingent on us, but on you. God, I'm thankful that you have revealed to us today in these few verses your your desire for us, your hope for us. And God, I know that sometimes we read verses like this and it kind of just sounds like a, a poetic saying. It's hard to know what that looks like in the here and in the now. How do we hold fast to you, Jesus? How do we hold fast to the hope that we have in you? What does it mean that you are the anchor for our soul? And so God, I pray that by your spirit today, you would give us understanding. So grateful. It's uh, just worshipful. And my heart overflows with gratitude today when we consider what it is you've done. That that curtain has been removed, that it's been torn from top to bottom because of the work of Jesus. And he has taken our wretchedness and our shame and our sinfulness and he's absorbed the wrath that we deserve and and we have been given instead the righteousness of Christ that we can approach the throne of God and we can hold securely on and be wrapped in this anchor for our souls the very promises of God completed through Christ so God we love you give us understanding of this and may we worship in light of this truth we love you pray these things in Jesus name